0: A native of Oregon and a graduate of Princeton, Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal writes the weekly column, Potomac Watch. She is also the author of a number of books, including most recently, Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. Kim, thanks for joining us. Hi, Peter. And welcome everyone to this special shelter at home edition of Uncommon (laughs) Knowledge. I'm at home in Palo Alto, you're at home where?
1: I am currently at home in my home in Alaska. I actually split my time between D.C. and Alaska, but the kids are here, and we decided if we were going to shelter in place, it would be nicer up north.
0: So April, still plenty of snow on the ground? Lots of
1: snow on the ground. It was about 11 degrees last night, um, but we're getting lots of daylight already. So it's getting light before 6 and not getting dark until after 9.
0: Any Bears coming out of hibernation. I guess I'm running through all my Alaska <laughs> cliches in my mind here. Okay,
1: next up is moose. The moose are all out in force.
0: <laughs> the yeah.
1: bears, we haven't, uh, it's still a little bit early, but it's pretty soon they'll be out.
0: All right. All right. So we take, we, I'm in California, you're in Washington, and we take both our minds and put them in Washington. Two quotations. The first is you in the Wall Street Journal on April 2nd. So just a few days ago as we, as we record this, quote, Crises have a way of separating the leader-like from the opportunistic. The Trump administration spent this week distributing ventilators, standing up small business loans, dispatching hospital ships, erecting alternate care facilities, explaining virus modeling, revamping regulations to keep truckers on the road, and plastering the airwaves with information about hygiene and social distancing, close quote. That's quotation one. Here's quotation two. This is Pete Weiner. In the Atlantic Magazine on March 13th, quote, Trump is fundamentally unfit for office. For me, Pete Weiner writing, that is the paramount consideration for electing a president because at some point a president will face an unexpected crisis. The crisis has arrived in the form of the coronavirus pandemic and it's hard to name a president who has been as overwhelmed by a crisis as the coronavirus has overwhelmed Donald Trump. Kim. Two just totally different views of reality here.
1: Yeah, so look, first of all, this is an unprecedented crisis as we have all talked about uh, ceaselessly. And it's hard for me to know that there would be any leader any person or any administration that would have been prepared for it or known exactly what to do. So from my perspective, I think the question is when you look at Donald Trump, and by the way, we all have different views of his leadership style, but if you look at the actions and what has actually taken place, the question is, is the federal government providing some sort of guidance and is it providing the support it needs to the states? And I think that as a general answer to that, that has happened.
0: All right, let me do this again, another pair of quotations. Same idea, actually. Here's David Frum, in the Atlantic, April 7th, just a couple days ago, that the pandemic occurred is not Trump's fault. The utter unpreparedness of the United States for a pandemic is Trump's fault. And David went on at about 2000 words length and the whole article was titled, this is Trump's fault. Hmm. Here's Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal, again, April 7th. Same day, same day. There will be much to criticize about the Trump administration's response, just as we can never forgive FDR's baiting of Japan with embargoes, Kennedy's actions in the Bay of Pigs, or Johnson's in the Tonkin Gulf. Mr. Trump is the worst president we've ever had, just like some of the best presidents we've ever had. So so there's, so there's here's the, this distinction between Trump is singularly unsuited for office. He is singularly at fault, as opposed to Holman Jenkins who says, wait a minute, this is human affairs. We all mess up over It's The story of American history is the story of getting it wrong at first, then pulling ourselves together and finally getting it right. So where you're in the Holman camp on this one, correct?
1: Well, right, but I think that that's in part because Look, I'd be open to somebody making the argument that Donald Trump is singularly unsuited for this moment. The problem is is that most of the people that are making that case, including David Frum, who you just quoted, or including Pete Wayner, have been making the case that Donald Trump is singularly unsuited for office from before the time he was even elected. So it becomes kind of difficult to separate out the uniqueness of their argument in this case versus their general view that the man should never have been elected at all. Right. That, that just, I mean, and that's, that's I think, And I've made this case many times that for the kind of Trump haters out there, after a while, your repetition begins to weaken your argument. Um, Now Holman's point, I think, is very good. Are we making mistakes on a daily, uh, a daily occurrence in the middle of this? Oh, you bet we are. And one day there's going to be a postmortem that is going to be really ugly. But I would argue that that postmortem is going to be one that looks at a lot of mistakes that were made by a lot of administrations on the road to coronavirus. You know, whether it was prior administrations that didn't adequately restock our stockpiles, whether it's uh, health agencies that over 30 years have claimed to be preparing for pandemics and yet seem to have no plan when this came out. Sure, this is going to require complete retooling of the way we look at these things, but to say that it's all incumbent upon one person is just ridiculous.
0: Back to the coronavirus, back to the substance of what we're dealing with right now. Just one more Frankly, one more Trump question. We've got. I quoted David Fromm and Pete Wainer. Of course, as you know, I could have quoted any number of dozens and dozens of people. But David Fromm and Pete Wainer both worked in the administration of George W. Bush three and a half years ago. Before Donald Trump, three and four years ago, before he declared his candidacy for president, you and I would have thought of David Fromm and Pete Wainer as broadly speaking to put it crudely, on our side, limited government, free markets, Republican candidates overall tend to be better for that than Democratic candidates. And now we have, it reminds me again and again of the OJ Simpson trial where we had the jury and those of us watching on television looking at exactly the same set of facts and coming to Utterly opposed conclusions. What accounts for this?
1: Yeah, I mean, this. But this has been happening again since the minute he wrote a whole book on it. I wrote a whole book on it, and you know, I I make these examples. It is astonishing to me, and this is my favorite one: that you continue to hear people say today that Donald Trump is some sort of autocrat or tyrant or a dictator in the making. Because I'm sorry, when you step back and you look at what his administration has actually done on a day-to-day basis. I mean, forget the president's press moments, forget the things he puts on Twitter, look at what's happened at the cabinet level, at the agency level. One of the biggest deregulations in the history of the country, if not the biggest, a giant tax cut. Okay, you can't become an autocrat by cutting the size of your government by a third, okay? I mean, everything that they have done is designed to take power away from the federal government, to devolve it out to the states, um, to make things more free in the country. Um, But that's an example of what you're saying. And so now we're getting it here in the context of the virus, which is, you know, Donald Trump is suitably, you know, uniquely inept or uniquely unqualified for this moment. I mean, I guess the question I would have for a lot of these people is what exactly would they be doing differently at this moment? Right. Um, and I think that gets us some big questions about shutdown, no shutdown. But again, is that on Donald Trump or on this kind of mass of so-called experts and health right. community, which is all over the map itself on what right. the way is supposed to be forward?
0: All right. The big takeaway. Here's Kim Strassel on March 19th. This is just great because I get to, I get to, I get to ask you what you meant about <laughs> this or that. Of course, I read your column all the time. Now I get to talk to you about it.
1: That's, that's co- bad, though, Peter. It means I wasn't clear enough the first time. Oh, no, no, I just I
0: to ask you to elaborate. <laughs> elaborate, elaborate. Here, I'm quoting you. Here's the lesson of the virus so far. Relying solely on government bureaucracy is insane. To the extent America is weathering this moment, it is in, no- in enormous part thanks to the strength, ingenuity, and flexibility of our thriving, competitive, capitalist players. Close quote explain that.
1: Well, look, to me, whatever you criticism you want to level at the Trump administration, the single most important thing they did at the very beginning was a philosophical decision, which is that they were not going to attempt to deal with this on their own. They were going to embrace the private sector and move forward in a public-private partnership in dealing with this. Brilliant, because that is exactly the way forward in this country. And it always has been federal government. When do we ever expect the federal government to turn on a dime and handle a major project? I mean, you cannot reconcile that idea in your head with, for instance, the DMB, okay? <laughs> Which is what most of us think of in terms of government. So you turn to actors, you can, and what's unique about this partnership is that you have players out there wanting to do stuff, and then the government's role is to get out of their way, right? And so it was the CDC that completely messed up that original testing regimen. Oh, it was a private a sector.
0: Bit. Go into that a little bit, because that, that gets laid at Trump's uh, that Trump gets blamed for that again and again and again. That's still going on, but just explain what actually happened with regard well, to the testing. What,
1: yeah, so what happened is the CDC, the the, the World Health Organization had its own way of going forward with testing, but lots of different countries over the time have always had different uh, regimens, testing regimens. The CDC has traditionally, and in this case, it did it again, decided it wanted to come up with its own testing regimen because it wanted to exert some quality control over that. The problem was, is that when all the scientists went and did it, they messed it up. It didn't work. And it delayed us for a couple of weeks. They then turned to the private sector, which got, you know, luckily we had some incredible actors out there who've been working on this already themselves and they were able to stand up an effective testing regimen in a little less than a week. Thank you, private sector. But you see that replicated, whether it's on the ventilator front, whether it's on personal protection equipment, whether it's on the vaccines that are getting pushed forward. I mean, we have an amazing resource in the United States. And and just one last thing on this, it is astonishing to me even as we are watching this. And also all of these corporations paying employees, even though they've got no money coming in, you know, giving them leave, like we hear these stories of small businesses bending over backwards to make sure they're not laying people off. At the same time, we have Bernie Sanders giving a farewell or drop out of the race speech this week in which he was unrelentingly horrid to the corporate community and suggested everything wrong in the United States is laid at its feet.
0: Amazing. Kim, so big takeaway, private sector is saving us.
1: Amazing, Let's
0: discuss a couple of threats to the private sector that the current crisis may be posing. And one is, in one way or another, if it happens, it'll happen in a subtle way. It'll happen press conference by press conference, probably. A shift from decision-making by the democratically elected office holders to the unelected public health officials. And so there have been moments when people have said, in conversations I've overheard, the acting president of the United States is Dr. Fauci. (laughs) Donald Trump's instincts were clearly against shutting down the economy, but the experts talked him into it. Actually, by the way, let's start with that, with the threshold question. Are you satisfied that the public health experts did a serious and rigorous job of weighing the costs of shutting down the economy and throwing, we now know today's figure is 6.6 million Americans out of work and all all the pathologies that go with unemployment, that they did a serious and adequate job of weighing those costs against the benefits of the lives they believed we could save Uh, by shutting down the economy. Did they do that right?
1: Of course they didn't. But you know what? In fairness, it's not their job to do that, right? I mean, look, public health officials exist to worry about public health, right. and we have them, and they're meant to be one part of a broader government in which the president is soliciting and getting the views of a whole range of different experts. And that clearly didn't happen here. And you know, I, I blame a little bit the media. I blame Democrats who immediately came out of the box with his mantra: "You need to listen to the scientists. You need to listen to the scientists." Okay, we do need to listen to the scientists, but we also need to listen to the economists who are talking about what the balance of all of this will be and and, and what the similar devastation, by the way, to health will be of people who are homeless. Who can't feed their kids, who mm-hmm. are having mental health issues because of all of this, or the people right now, I would give this all the people who aren't going in and getting mammograms or colonoscopies, and we are potentially missing other cancers. I all mean, the none of this
0: procedures that are being delayed. Yes. Right.
1: None of this is necessarily good overall for health. So, yes, we're making a dent on one type of fatality out there, but at what cost in every other way? That's my one concern. I think the other concern that I really have about this is. When, let's say you take the advice, listen to the experts. Why these particular experts? You right. know, and I'm not, again, in any way diminishing Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks or, or any of the people that are working on this. They're but, accomplished
0: people full of goodwill. We'll stipulate but, that.
1: Yeah, but they... It also happens because they just happen to be there at this time. It doesn't necessarily mean they are the most qualified people or there aren't other experts out there that are similarly like have a lot to to uh, supply here and maybe a different view. And so I I think the president's obligation really needs to be to step back and listen to everyone and then make the decisions.
0: So. In questions of national security, I'm, th- I'm thinking this through, uh, I'll fumble because I'm, the, the thought is occurring to me as I speak. In questions of national security, it's the job of the National Security Council to hold debates. Right. And, and if necessary, to get the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of, of State in the Situation Room to thrash it out in front of the president. No such debates have been held among public health officials in the current crisis.
1: That's my fear. Right. right. I mean, you know, we have guys uh, right out there and your um John Ianidas, I think yes. I'm saying his name yes. the right way. You know, a, an amazing sort of look at the numbers sort of person. And, and he's got a very different view of all of Does this. And yes. I haven't really seen anything either, by the way, that suggests that, that he isn't on to something or that his view isn't as valid as those that are being voiced in the White House. So in my perfect world in the coming weeks, uh, we would begin to have that debate within the White House. The president would be soliciting the views of experts across the country and not just from the infectious disease area, but from a wide range of health and public health disciplines, because they would all have very different views. All right.
0: Here's another threat to the private sector, to the kind of vigorous private action that you champion from the current crisis. And now I'm quoting William Galston in the Wall Street Journal. All I do is read the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) Occasionally, too. the Atlantic. So here's Galston writing a couple of days ago. Quote, no Senate Republican, not one, voted against the $2.2 trillion rescue bill, an unprecedented expansion of government's cost and reach. Close quote. And I recall the brief press conference that Majority Leader McConnell gave after they voted to move that $2.2 trillion package to the president's desk and Majority Leader McConnell was crowing that the Senate had gone from the bitterness of impeachment to the common cause of this rescuing the economy. And of course you can get every senator to vote for giving away billions of other people's money. This feels too good to those guys. They're going to want to do it again. Is that not a danger?
1: It's a huge danger. I mean, as I pointed out in the in the aftermath of that vote, uh, you had all of these senators running around saying, oh, look, $100 billion for hospitals. And look, we're sending this much money to individuals at home and breaking out all of these little categories. What nobody was pointing out was that the single biggest category in that bill
0: Six hundred billion, if I recall from your column, more
1: than six hundred billion dollars went to government itself. And by the way, that's not even counting the money that also went to state governments as well, too. That's just the federal government's payday. Um, So you know, they walked away with the biggest slice of this pie. And you know, that was partly Democrats demanding. Um, saying, you know, we knew where the money needed to go here. Look, anybody did. Where did we need? we need? We were having a beginning of a liquidity crisis. We needed money to get to corporations and to small businesses to thereby encourage them to keep their employees on the payroll and thus spare us from having more people go to government for help. That's right. a simple, simple concept. But Democrats, the price of this was, um, you know, you got to give us money for the food stamps, turbocharged, unemployment insurance. Uh, you should see the money that just flew to every department in government. And it NASA, was very funny. You
0: pointed out NASA got money. Yeah,
1: now, all under this sort of vague term, like uh, for the purpose of preparing and dealing with coronavirus, NASA gets $60 million. You're like, oh, make $60 million. But you're like, why? For what cause? So, in the end, Democrats demanded it, but Republicans willingly rolled over for it because they like big government too, many of them, and nobody wanted to seem to be the spoil sport at this spending party.
0: Perfect. All right. Um, the politics of it all. This is, it may seem crass to say so in the middle of what still feels like a crisis. But it is the fact that we have an election in seven months. Yes, we do. Here's William Galston again. President Trump had planned to organize his campaign around two themes a strong economy and a critique of the Democratic Party for allegedly embracing socialism. That gives away Galston, allegedly. Anyway, for allegedly <laughs> embracing socialism. In today's radically transformed circumstances, neither of those themes is likely to work. The economy's in a recession and Republicans themselves just voted for this gigantic budget-busting bill. Where do the politics of this shape out? Yeah, well,
1: if you look at those two themes, I think they're going to obviously have to be modulated. Um, although I think that there is uh, there are corollaries to them that you are likely to see the Trump administration adopt. Look, with any luck, we are going to come out of the other side of this at some point, and the economy is going to start back up again. Everyone's having a debate. Are we going to have a, a U-shaped curve on the way back up, a V-shaped curve? The bigger point is is that we're going to have a chance to rebuild. I think what you're going to see the Trump administration start to do is shift to arguing that you need a sort of conservative – Trump-like person in office to maintain that, uh, that we're at a risky time period. The Democrats have just demonstrated their own view of governance, which is to just throw more money at it and and bash on the private sector. We, especially right now, cannot afford to have that happen. We will not come out of this for a long time if they are elected to the presidency in November. That's going to be one of their arguments.
0: And that this- will prove compelling?
1: Well, I think it's going to partly depend on, look, I mean, it's just simply the case that the way people feel about their pocketbooks plays a great deal into an election. So how bad is this? How much is the response that we put out there going to stem the losses? How quick is the recovery? We just don't have the answers to that yet. Hmm.
0: The journalists, the the question (laughs) of journalism I'll come back to the j- journalists and coronavirus in a moment, but first, here's something that nobody—it just—it just disappeared. The story disappeared, and you know where I'm going with this. Subsequent to the investigation of the FBI's requests to the FISA court connected to the Russia matter, the Department of Justice's Inspector General inspected more than two dozen other FBI wiretap applications the IG's office went in and essentially at random pulled together 29 that had nothing to do with the Russia matter just to see how the FBI was submitting these things. And the IG's conclusion, there were quote apparent errors or inadequately supported facts, close quote, in every single one. And as I say, the IG. Inspector General of the Department of Justice issued that report in late March. As you and I speak, this is 10, 12 days ago.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It got this biggest story in a few newspapers, and it's gone. What do you make of that?
1: Well, I would like to point out, we, at the editorial page, the Wall Street Journal did a big editorial on it because- oh, it. I, it, it I
0: <laughs> always, in all my, I always accept the op-ed page, uh, the editorial page <clears throat> of the journal. Go ahead.
1: No, but because this is a huge deal, right? hundred um, percent failure rate, okay? And and it's important because it puts the lie to guys like Comey, who for the past years have said, oh, you know, you can't bash on the FBI. It's nothing but a bunch of people. We are straight up, you know, these applications are the most serious things we do all the time. You know, when the results in December came out of the IG's Russia report, he said, well, I guess we were a little sloppy. Well, now we find out that uh, apparently the FBI's general attitude is that they don't need to follow any of the rules uh, and that we've got nobody watching the shop. Um, You know, and if if, if the IG randomly chose 29 applications and every one of them was violating what are known as the Woods Files procedures, Mm -hmm. which are meant to be the central mechanism by which you... Keep the FBI on the straight and narrow and make sure these applications are what are known, what are supposed to be scrupulously accurate. They don't care. And then the other aspect of that IG report is they also found out that the internal mechanisms that the FBI and Department of Justice are supposed to maintain to guarantee this are a joke. Nobody looks at the results of the reports that they do. Nobody goes back to the individuals who filed the applications and said, hey, you made errors. What's up with this? There's no consequences for anybody. No accountability. And, And the media doesn't want to talk about this because it reminds them of the Russia story which was a humiliating experience for both them and the Democratic Party.
0: Do they feel humiliated?
1: Is well, they any, should. Any,
0: they, well, they should. They
1: should feel humiliated because they got it 100% wrong. They put right. the country through torture for 3 years on the basis of their own hatred of a candidate not on the basis of any facts.
0: So, a quick little summary. The media got the Russia matter entirely wrong. Mhm. All these months later, not a shred of evidence has turned up that now Justice Kavanaugh was justly accused by Christine Blasey Ford. Not a shred of evidence, of which I'm aware, that that was anything other than a fabrication from beginning to end. And what else? And now we have the IG's report making unambiguous that the FBI has been sloppy in one of its most solemn duties. Correct? correct and the and the press has no interest in any of that already. well
1: i think it's really wise though that you bring it up because it reminds us peter i mean look the press does this all the time we are in the middle of the coronavirus you know right. everything all day long 24 hours uh, 7 days a week but it that's going to fade and people are going to remember that there are other issues <laughs> that do matter in in the running uh, of a country and in elections and Remember, we still have the Durham report to come out at some point too. That's right. uh, and that has not disappeared. And, and I keep reminding people as well that my belief, my understanding is that he is very conscious of not wanting to go too far into an active election period with his results. He wants to get that out. So I'd wager that's still going to come out sooner rather than later.
0: This spring, summer at the latest,
1: I'd think so. I would, I would, I would imagine he'd like to have it done before the conventions because that is often
0: viewed as an official starting gun for an election. So there's a huge story coming on the coronavirus itself. Journalism, even on the coronavirus, I was thinking this over here. Can I just give you a couple of questions? Just questions off the top of my head. So. Dr. Fauci has been saying that this thing is more lethal than the flu. And it turns out, as best I understand, and I've talked to some physician friends here at Stanford, he cannot know that. He cannot know that. The lethality rate is a ratio. It's the number of people who die divided by something. And you can't know that it's more lethal than the flu until you have much more widespread testing of people who are infected. So there he is saying something that he can't know in front of a room full of reporters and no reporters respectful. I mean, I have li- I have to confess, I have other things to do. I haven't listened to every minute of those <laughs> White House briefings, but you know, I dip in from time to time as you do. And the tenor is aggressive toward the president, aggressive toward Pence and fawning toward do- Dr. Fauci and the public health professionals even when there's an, that question seems to me obvious, respectful, pertinent, and unasked. Or this question of, there's a new book out by a couple of Princeton economists. You're a Princeton woman. The deacon, husband and wife team, and they they've done a study. I haven't read the book, but I read the review in the New Yorker, and they asked, what is the cause of these deaths of despair? And it's not related to age, and it's not related to race, and it's not related to region it's a result of unemployment. Where people are unemployed, they abuse alcohol, they abuse drugs, you get domestic violence and you get suicide. Well, if serious economists such as those at Princeton are studying this matter and running studies and quantifying it, why aren't we getting some modeling about the the, the likely health effects of throwing 7 million Americans out of work that at least parallels the modeling we're getting every hour, it seems, on the coronavirus. Now, that's again, that strikes me as pertinent, respectful, obvious, and unasked. What is going on with American journalism? Yeah, Am I wrong? A, but no, no,
1: no. Every day I watch those, and it's so frustrating to me because I, I wish I were there to get to raise my are hand. Good
0: questions to ask of these people.
1: Here's another one that I think falls into that same category. But and you have probably noticed this as well. But everyone seems to have a different term up there, and I mean, above among the scientists, about yes. what it is exactly the end game is here. What are we trying to accomplish? You know, is it to slow the spread? Because that's very different from stopping the spread. Correct. Okay. Are we attempting to eliminate this altogether and then trace any new little case of it and go out and extinguish that? Um, Because if that's the case, we're going to be locked down for a very, very long time. And we won't have an economy at the end of it. Or if we're going to slow the spread, slow the curve, lower the curve, flatten, whatever you want to call it. Let's be honest that if you're taking that approach, a lot more people are still going to get this just over a longer period of time, in which case, why aren't we opening up some of these lockdowns? I mean, I just think that there are some really fundamental questions that the scientific crew up there does not get asked.
0: So, so okay. I guess there's no surprise that Peter Robinson and Kim Strassel are in violent agreement. <laughs> but- But there is, the larger question is, these guys have shut down the American economy. I don't know what stories you're hearing in Alaska, but here, I live in an older house. We had some trouble with the kitchen and I had a plumber in the other day. And it turns out that kitchen sinks are considered essential. But he had three guys show up for work the same day. There was a gas line that needed to be repaired. And some bureaucrat in city hall had decided to yank the permit because after all that was non-essential. So three guys went home that day without getting paid. Mm -hmm. This is happening over and over and over again at a vast scale. They have done something grave in shutting down the economy and they still can't explain to us quite what they think they're doing it for. And I don't understand why journalists aren't on their feet asking Fauci to clear this up. What is is what what is the failure of American journalism? Or well, I don't It doesn't it seem as though Bill Sapphire or Scotty Reston of the old days, the New York Times would have pushed these guys for answers?
1: Well, they would have asked the tough questions, but they would have asked the tough questions of those who are actually driving this show, which is what you're saying about the kind of public health officials who are standing up there on the stage. Look, I mean, this is one of the jokes of journalism these days is that... They pretend to be tough by being mean to Donald Trump as if there is any effort involved in that whatsoever. <laughs> you know and, and and as doing so, they kind of hide beneath this this lack of willingness or lack of bravery to ask some really hard questions also because they don't want anything. To work. The, the other problem is that they don't want anything to impede any narrative that looks as though it's bad for Donald Trump or that allows them to beat on Donald Trump. So that's what happened with the Russia thing, right? I mean, look, it wouldn't have been very hard to unravel or even to just poke holes in the ludicrousness of the ideas that they right. were promoting, right? right? But it was so much more important to them that it be true in some way, that they were willing to spend two and a half years, making things up. And that's what we're looking at today too. And unfortunately, when you don't have a functioning press, when you don't have a press that does its job, it is bad for the country. And so, you know, people love to pile on the press. I feel, find it more of a tragedy than I do anything else. It's because it hurts all of us in the end.
0: Hmm. A few last questions, Kim. Um, you're not only working at home, but you've got three kids to keep an eye on at home. So I won't, thank you for your time. How does this end? Uh, we've even in New York, which has it seems to be the hardest hit. We, the, the, the peak either has, has already taken place or appears to be taking place quite soon in a matter of days, not weeks. Who gets to go back to work and when and who's going to decide all this? That actually strikes me as a pretty complicated sequencing problem. Who gets to go first? How do we sort this out, right?
1: Well, also, who do we convince to go first? I think that that's an even bigger problem. And it's why, it, you know, in some I, I ways.
0: You're crazy. Mr. President, I volunteer right now.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, but what I mean is from, look, we live in a federalist system. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, and everyone keeps asking the, the president when he's going to open the economy. It's not up to Donald Trump to open the economy, okay? Uh, every one of these governors and mayors have made their own decisions and will continue to make their own decisions. That being said, I do think the federal government is going to play a crucial role in this regard. It's going to have to push people by putting out very clear guidance about what it suggests being done, because it's going to take a little bit of a prod to get some of these governors to agree to move. You know, there's look, we're talking about politics in the end here. Okay, I'm not in any way suggesting that these officials don't care about the people in their state and their economies. But uh, right now, it's safer to be in lockdown than not. Okay. So from a political perspective, right? If you're a governor of a state, do you really want to be the first one that says, okay, hey, y'all go back to work and good luck and hope that works out. So, you know, (laughs) especially when you have a federal government that again, has not been clear to people about what the end game is here. You know, If we're in a situation where we go back and it is expected that this is still going to run through society, people are still going to be going to the hospital, we're still going to have outbreaks, they need to start telling everybody that now and let people get their heads around it. Um, You know, if if we're going to be in la-la land and pretend that the real goal here is to stamp this out, people aren't going to want to go back to work.
0: Right, right, right. The president tweeted, I guess it was earlier this week, that he expects the economy to rebound very quickly, maybe even bounce back to a higher growth rate than we were enjoying earlier. We were, what, a little over 2% at, at when the crisis hit. We'd been at 3% a year before that, I guess six months before that. I spoke last week, though, to Kevin Warsh, mm-hmm. former former uh, member of the Fed, former Fed governor. And Kevin said, wrong, wrong, wrong. I think it'll take longer than most believe. Um, again i don't think the economy can be turned on uh, as quickly as it was turned off i think that's um, in general the great benefit of the american capitalist system people are thinking of this economy like a light switch we can turn it off and then we can switch it back on it's a living organism it has been very very badly wounded right and it will take time to heal So I said, Kevin, what do you mean? Weeks, months, and Kevin said quarters. What do you think?
1: No, I think that there's, that's right. I mean, just like, remember too, when we talk about people going back to work, reopening the economy, you're talking about a million different sectors of economy, some of which will be able to get back to work, maybe relatively quickly, maybe in some areas of manufacturing, for instance. Um, there are going to nonetheless be entire sectors of the economy. And by the way, not little ones either, big ones, airlines, you know, you can't expect to have a healthy airline uh, that depends on half of its income or more or from overseas travel, which no one's going to be allowing anytime soon. Okay. And then you, 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 you reflect that, From sector to sector, the hotel industry, the cruise industry, um, you know, uh, B and Bs. You know, I just saw something the other day about some of the Airbnb, you know, and different kind of uh, these groups that allow you to um, book in other people's homes. Who's going to be using those? So this is going to be a slow rolling reopening, and you know, it, it could be quite some time before we're anything anywhere near back to normal.
0: And the politics of that are the That's best. why Again, I'm saying we have yeah. seven months. Seven months. I spoke not I spoke earlier this morning to Senator Portman, Rob Portman of Ohio. Democrats likely, who knows? He said, who knows? But Democrats likely to keep the House because Republicans face so many more difficult seats in the Senate than do Democrats. The Democrats need to flip four seats in the Senate. And recapture the White House, and the day after Election Day, we will wake up in a different country. Seven months from now, so I how think, quickly can you get that economy revving again, Kim? Yeah,
1: I think it's it's almost impossible at just at this very moment to look forward and know how any of this is going to play out politically. It's it's very very difficult, you know. Look, but I would I will add one other factor in here uh, that I think is notable because you mentioned it earlier about what the White House's original plan was going to be to talk about the economy and talk about socialists. Well, I would point out that while Bernie Sanders did give a kind of concession speech this week, and kind of dropped out, he didn't really That was sort of fake news. He says he's going to remain on the ballot on all continuing primary states and continue to collect as many delegates as he can. And the purpose of this, because we already have newspapers reporting it, is that he is in negotiations with the Biden's camp about what aspects of his agenda Biden has to adopt before Bernie will allow his people to support
0: Biden. This isn't over at all.
1: This isn't over. And he says he'll go to the convention. So this is all about extracting pounds of policy flesh from Joe Biden. And they've already put out their list of demands. He needs to support Medicare for All. He needs to support the Green New Deal. He needs to support a 50% reduction in prison populations. He needs to support uh, free college tuition, a complete forgiveness of all student loan debt. Um, and it's well, it's unlikely to see Biden doing all of that, he's going to end up doing some of it. And that is very dangerous for Joe Biden. If you're trying to get independents, disaffected Trump voters, suburban housewives, you know, this is a point at which he's supposed to be pivoting back to the middle. And Bernie made clear this week that his intention is to make sure there's no pivot. And in fact, that Joe Biden becomes just as unelectable as he was.
0: By the way, did you see the Babylon B headline? Sanders withdraws from race because goals of doubling federal spending and destroying capitalism already accomplished.
1: <laughs> no, I didn't. I shouldn't laugh.
0: That, no. <laughs> laugh or cry. So I have, I've, I've got a closing question, which I, lovely closing question, but I can't close just yet. Do you, I don't know how to articulate this one, but Donald Trump even people who like him, can't stand him, up to this point, a lot of people, the position of many people has been, oh my goodness, do we, nevertheless on policy, he's okay. He's better than the alternatives. The policy is okay. And as long as we don't have to look at him, it'll be all right. Is there some sense maybe in which for the first time, The fate of the ordinary American is linked to that guy. As we go through this, there's some, something this happens to some presidents, but not all, to some, of course, always to wartime presidents, but you begin to feel, I don't like him, I don't, but he's my guy, he's the country's guy. We need him to succeed. Is that sort of, is there some sense in which there's a kind of deepening of support or Beginning of some kind of attachment to him as a result of this crisis, or am I just talking romantic, unquantifiable romantic nonsense?
1: I don't know. I mean, look, I think the the phenomenon you describe is one that you would expect to be seeing in a crisis. Uh, in a crisis, right? I think that as with so many ID issues it comes down to Donald Trump and it's, it's fundamentally gonna be up to Donald Trump in that regard as well too. Look, I look for instance, just my own view, I look at these briefings and when I, I think they first started, I thought they were a good idea. It made the president look engaged in uh, the head of things. You know, As they have gone on and become a little bit more of the Donald Trump show, uh, you know, and, and the drama, of the fights with the reporters, that's not what people wanna be seeing right now okay you know they they want him to get up there deliver the news send the message that they've got a handle on what's going on um and then let the rest of the team talk and and get on with it so but i don't i'm not quite sure he can help himself and you know the thing about donald trump is i don't everyone says it's about his ego and everything i think it's more donald trump you know he, I think he thinks he's you know, fully engaged in doing the right thing and being there for the American people. And that sometimes the dividing line between what Trump wants for Trump and what Trump is trying to do for everyone else is, is, is very murky.
0: Okay. Now we pull back from Donald Trump and the current crisis. Let's, let's, let's expand our thinking, raise our thinking from weeks and quarters, even to years. Here's Kim Strass on the Wall Street Journal on March 19th. The nation's response to the crisis has been made possible, quote, by free market policies that have underwritten three years of economic boom and put companies on a better footing to confront hard times. If the US is to overcome this crisis and future ones, we need more of these animal spirits, not less. That's the takeaway of this pandemic. More animal spirits, not less. Are you optimistic?
1: Well, look, here's something that I hope uh, our side, as you were saying, embraces. We're talking right now about the threat of bigger government given all of the spending. Uh, We're talking right now about the threat to the economy and our politics should certain, you know, socialist candidates win in November. But what I see here is also an opportunity for people to realize the problems of government. Okay. I mean, no one, we need to make sure no one forgets that the reason we're shut down is because government shut us down. All right. And we need to take a look around. I have been fascinated. How many times over the last three weeks have we had a story about this or that agency dismantling a regulation? so that something could proceed more quickly. I think this is an opportunity for us to ask why they were there in the first place and are they really serving any purpose? You know, maybe we could come out of this with a healthier view of, of government and its problems and, and maybe even a, a smaller, more streamlined one if we, if we do things the right way.
0: Kim Strassel, don't stay in Alaska too long. <laughs> we need you down here in the lower 48. Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, Thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.